Well, good morning, everyone. I'm excited to bring to you the message this morning. When Pastor Derek asked me about two months ago to take this date and preach, uh, the Lord laid on my heart a passage and a topic, and I've been excited to speak to them this morning. I, I want to encourage us all to remember also to be praying for Pastor Derek as he is on sabbatical for the rest of this month, praying for his time with God that he is refreshed, uh, pray for amazing interactions with the Holy Spirit in this time. And, and we are just so thankful for a church that sees the value in Sabbath and sabbatical time for each other and for pastors and for leaders. So thank you so much. Continue to pray for Pastor Derek. Well, this morning, I'm going to talk a little bit about our human experience and our relational experience as humans. You see, as humans, our wiring, our responses, and how we walk through experiences includes emotions and emotional responses. I think that one of the movies for kids that's come out in the last couple of years that is brilliant is a movie called Inside Out. Maybe you've seen that movie. Inside Out uses imagination, and it uses story to help draw in kids, but not only kids, parents and other people, uh, to, to really voice and talk about and understand emotions. Emotions are a huge part of what it means to be human, and they're also a huge part of what it means to connect with other human beings and build community and healthy relationships. But in multiple ways, for multiple different reasons, we tend to avoid our emotions and numb our emotions and maybe act like they don't matter or matter as much. Sometimes we don't take care of our own souls and our own emotions or we act like maybe it's wrong to have some of the emotions that we feel. And then when we disengage with our own emotions, sometimes we disengage with other people's emotions. I would say actually that more and more our society is falling into, if you're a Star Trek fan, you might get this reference, falling into vulcanizing the way that we engage with one another. I don't know if you've seen Star Trek, but Spock is a Vulcan. And Vulcans are a, a group and, 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 uh, that are very focused on logic, very focused on reason, but don't really have a connection with emotions. We, we just look at our day and age, slogans like facts don't care about your feelings. This is just more proof of this sort of vulcanized society. Over the election season, there was a flag waving in my neighborhood that said, blank your feelings. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to pull us into John 11.35. Now, if you're familiar with John 11.35 or not, I'm going to tell you it's the shortest verse in the Bible. And you're like, yes. <laughs> He's going to go at the shortest verse in the Bible. We could get out of here. We could watch the Super Bowl. But I'm going to tell you that it's one of the deepest emotional moments and connections that we see with Jesus. We're also going to look at some of the verses around it. We're, we're going to see how Jesus, in the midst of a moment of him speaking truth and asking truthful questions, he allows people to be frustrated, to hurt, to mourn. He, 
He allows them to respond maybe uh, with a limited perspective, but respond emotionally, and he is moved by their emotional responses, so much so that he has an emotional response. Will you pray with me? Lord God, I pray that our hearts are open. God, you see our desires, you see our hearts, you see our story up to this point, the places where maybe we need to let you dig and we need to let you plant and we need to let you move and change us. I pray that healing maybe comes to some people's souls. I pray that healing maybe comes to some people's relationships in this. Lord, I also pray for Pastor Derek as he's away. I pray, Lord, that you are doing what you need to do in his heart and soul. We thank you so much for his leadership here. And Lord, we give this time over to you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I'm going to make two foundational statements before we continue on. They're going to be foundational statements that we're going to kind of work off of, and it actually helps us understand what we're talking about. The first one you've probably heard before. As a matter of fact, I've preached on it before, and it's this. Humans are made in the image of God. You're probably like, I, I know this. This is the Imago Dei. The issue is, though, sometimes for different reasons, whatever it is, that view, that image that we can see of seeing other people made in the image of God, it gets clouded. Sometimes it gets clouded and we don't see it. And because of that, we don't always treat the other or the other person as human. But the reality is it doesn't matter a person's race, creed, sexual orientations, political leanings, and other things that maybe might make us feel different. All human beings are made in the image of God. Now, the second statement I want to make is this, and I'm going to make it twice so that you catch it. It's, it's in Jesus the Christ. I'm saying that because Christ isn't his last name. It's his title. In Jesus the Christ, God became the image of what God looks like in our likeness. Let me say that again. In Jesus the Christ, God became the image of what God looks like in our likeness. If you want biblical backing for this, you have John 1, 1 through 14. You have Philippians 2, 1 through 11. You have Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. You could go check those out. But what I want us then to understand from these foundational statements is this, that if our image of Christianity or what Christianity is about or the Christianity that we are attempting to live out does not look like Jesus, who is the image of God made in our likeness, something is off. Now, I believe that we often look not at Jesus, but we look at living out our religious faith in a way that does not line up with the God that we see who took on human form and became the person and Godhead, Jesus, the Son of God. Well, what can we see in Jesus that we often miss? Well, here's a couple things. Sometimes we miss his desire to be with us, right? His name should be called Emmanuel, God with us. John 1, he wanted to dwell among us. Then his desire to change our affections by his loving kindness. Scripture says it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. 
His desire is to meet with us, to dwell among us in our messy, emotional, tired, and broken states, our human states. And he loves us so much that he stepped into our world and he himself experienced the whole bit of the human experience, which includes temptation, emotions, and even death. If our Christianity that we are living out, if our, the way of Christ that we are living out is to be accurate, it must look like Christ. I want to tell you a little bit about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, this past week, I was part of a conference with a bunch of clergy in a denomination that I'm still a part of. And we talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And as we talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I was like, man, I really want to bring some of this story to Life Church because it has to do with what we're talking about here today. If you've never heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was born in the early 1900s in a part of Germany that's actually now a part of Poland, but he was German. He wasn't raised really in a strong practicing Christian home, uh, but at the age of 17, he felt called to be a pastor. And so this dude was brilliant. I mean, like really brilliant. He finished his PhD at age 21. And he was so smart, actually, that one of the, like, big dog Lutheran theologians, a guy by the name of Karl Barth, uh, actually praised him for his theological, his systematic theological work. So he's getting affirmation from these big dog theologians at a very young age. Well, in 1930, after he finished his PhD, he goes to America to continue studying at Union Seminary in New York. And at Union Seminary in New York in 1930, he begins attending Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. Now, let me put this in your perspective. This is 1930. He's at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, New York. This is an African-American church. This is 1930. This is kind of the height in that moment of some of this, uh, uh, this racist oppression and tensions in America. And here you have this white German guy coming over and attending their church, but he didn't just attend it. He actually began teaching Sunday school to the children. So imagine this, this big dog theologian guy is attending this church and he's teaching Sunday school to the children. And while he's there, here's what happened. His heart was broken by the stories of this church community that even though they didn't look like him, they they didn't come from the same background he did, what happened was their stories became his stories. He began to connect and empathize with them so much so, it's almost like when Pastor Derek talks about the heart of God was downloaded into him. He actually metaphorically says that his time at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem with the African-American church, he actually says that this was his time of Christian conversion. Even though he knew all the things, this is the moment where he connected with empathy to the stories and the pains and struggle of this people group. Well, he goes to Germany after a year of that, and the Nazi 
party comes to power. And as they come to power, they're oppressing the Jewish people. Now, it didn't just start with concentration camps. It was this slow fade that direction. And because of the heart that God gave him while he was in Harlem, he began to speak for the Jewish people and serve the Jewish people and speak against the evils of the Nazi powers. Now, to simplify the whole story, because there's a lot that's played out there, he was put to death for it. But what I want us to understand is this, that when he was in Harlem, his goal was to dwell among the people whose stories became his stories. And when he moved back to Germany, it was the Jewish people whose stories became his stories. Now check this out. In Mark 12, Jesus says what? He says, love your neighbor, what? As yourself. Let their story become your story. And in the Good Samaritan parable that he gives, it goes even farther. Let their problems become your problems, right? The Samaritan sees his enemy, a Jewish man on the side of the road. He's been beaten up. He's been robbed. And the Samaritan man picks up the Jewish guy, puts him on his own means of transportation, goes out of his way to take him to an inn. He pays out of his own pocket for the man's lodging and medical expenses and tells the innkeeper, I will settle the rest of the bill of whatever the other costs are with my own money when I return. You see, his problems became their problems. See, what happens is when you feel the pain of someone else and the emotion of someone else, it moves you. And this is what Jesus did. He stepped into human likeness and he loved with a self-sacrificial love. And so what I wanna do is I now wanna pull us in to the text in John 11 where we're gonna see Jesus in this way. Now, John 11, let me just give you a little bit of a backstory. I don't have a whole lot of time to go like way back into it, but he has three friends in Bethany. He has Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. We see he meets them in Luke 10. As he comes into Bethany, they invite him in and serve him. And Mary here is actually the same Mary that anointed his feet with perfume. And so these are his three friends. And while he's away, he hears that Lazarus is sick and he stays away a few days and then decides to go with his disciples to Bethany. And that's where we enter in here. And John, we're gonna start at verse 11. Verse 17, if you have your Bibles with you. It starts like this. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, this is important because in those days, if you were in the tomb for three days, after three days, you were considered dead. So it's making a statement here that's saying Lazarus is now dead. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to, to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. One thing you need to know about grief in this Jewish context is they give space for it. We're not good at giving space for it because of our busy lives. We don't like dealing with it, but they give space in their Jewish context for grief. And not just that, they don't let one another grieve alone. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, this is verse 20, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home 
Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Let me read that again. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Here's what's happening. She's walking through a grief process. We now know because of clinical psychology, we actually now understand the grief process. When somebody grieves and walks through the grief process, there's actually different steps that they walk through. Maybe not fully all the way through, they might step back to a past step, but there are actual markers and steps within the grief process that we have now learned. And so I'm going to teach you those steps here. There's five of them that I'm going to walk through, even though there's some like sub-steps within them, but I'll, I'll keep it so we can kind of understand. The first step is denial. When you suffer trauma or loss, you go, I can't believe that that just happened. I can't believe this is happening to me or happening to us. The next step is anger. You get very, very angry. The third step then is bargaining. And here's what happens in bargaining. Bargaining is, if I would have done this, maybe this wouldn't have happened. I saw this when my grandma passed away. I remember going to go see my grandpa and attend the funeral. I remember my grandpa saying, if only I would have called the nurse sooner, maybe this would not have happened. Then out of bargaining, you get depression, which is a, a, a sense of hopelessness or despair. And then as coming out of that, normally the next step is a moment of acceptance and moving forward in forgiveness. And so Martha, her response to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, is in the bargaining step. She is walking through grief. She is saying to Jesus almost kind of trying to see if there's a way that it, this could have been controlled so it would not have happened. Jesus said to her, I'm going into verse 23, my brother, or your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, I, I, I want to just tell you what's happening here quickly. I don't want to dig deep into it. But the Jewish people we see throughout the Bible, this is how they understood what it means to pass on from this life to the next. When you pass on from this life, they believe you went into the grave. In Hebrew, it's sheol. And what they would believe is you remain in the grave until the last days You'll, those who are part of the covenant will be raised from the dead in a resurrection. They would call this the resurrection of the dead or resurrection of the body. And if you know, uh, our early church creeds state, I believe what? In the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. If you want to look deeper into this, you can look Isaiah 26, 19. You can look at Matthew 22, where they say, hey, after the resurrection, Jesus Will people be able to be married? This is what Paul is talking about when he says, the dead in Christ shall rise first. This was their belief system. And Jesus now turns it. And here's what he says in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. Whoever lives by believing in me, will never die. So he's making a truth, factual statement here. And he asks a question, do you believe this? 
Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of God who is to come into the world. So he's making a statement about truth and facts and asks her if she believes it. And she's saying, yes, I believe it. Up here in my head, my knowledge, the facts, they're all straight and in line. But what I love about that is in the midst of that, he's still allowing this grief process to happen. And so Martha goes back and tells Mary that Jesus is here. So Mary leaves to go out to meet with Jesus and they think that maybe she's going to the tomb to grieve. And so a whole bunch of their friends, their Jewish friends, follow her to where she meets with Jesus. We're gonna hop into verse 32 here. It says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus, uh, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's bargaining again. She also is walking through the grief process and Jesus allows it to happen right there in front of him. Even though there's all these statements about the truth of him being the resurrection and the Christ and the son of God. It says this, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her weeping, it says this, he was deeply moved in the spirit and troubled. It's very important that we see that the majority of what's happening here is around people grieving. And here we see now that Jesus is moved by it. He's troubled by it. It's like when you see a loved one weeping and crying instead of avoiding them or acting like it's not real Part of the human response is to join in with them, and we're going to see it. Jesus asks, where have you laid him? In verse 34, come and see, Lord, they replied. And here we go, verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible that's packed with so much depth. Jesus wept. Jesus shed tears is what the word means. He wept. He was moved by their grief, their mourning, and their emotional responses, so much so that he himself was connected to it and had an emotional response. Then the Jews said, verse 36, see how he loved them. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying. They're bargaining some more. They want to know if there was a way. Now, I'm going to just kind of give you a snapshot of what happens after that for the sake of time. But Jesus, they go to the tomb. He tells them to take away the stone. Martha is concerned about the odor of death. Jesus prays to the Father. And then he yells out, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out and he's all wrapped up in strips of linen and it's all wrapped around him and he tells them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. See, moved by emotions of his friends, moved by his own emotional response, loving them and wanting them to believe and to see these things and these truths, he raised Lazarus from the dead. If we are to move in the patterns of Jesus, connecting with people's emotions, being moved by people's emotions, responding with emotion because of empathy, 
comes with the territory. This is not something that we can just do for ourselves or will for ourselves if we just don't know how to do this. No, this is the work of the Holy Spirit as our relationship with God changes our affection and heals us personally as well. Let's continue to put more feet and tangibility to this because we're still in kind of conceptual land here. So I started asking and brainstorming some questions here. What are some ways that we avoid our emotions? We don't want to deal with them. Well, we kind of just trap ourselves in our phones. Maybe it's through addictive habits. Normally, addictive habits, whatever it is, normally it's us not wanting to deal with pain. It's avoiding pain in unhealthy ways. Maybe it's unhealthy, religious, legalistic perspectives that we throw ourselves into. Maybe it's work we throw ourselves into in a deep way. Maybe it's just busyness. Some of the people that I know that have really struggled and had trauma in their life and pain, they're some of the busiest people that I know. And then I asked, why do we avoid our emotions? Well, to be honest with you, just straight up, they're hard to face. We're not really taught or discipled really to mourn and lament. We don't really leave space for it. That's kind of a cultural thing, but also we see that kind of seep into our Christian culture as well. What I love about the ancient church calendar is there's full moments of like Advent and full moments of Lent where we give space for these things. But what COVID has actually done is what it's done, it's done, done kind of a few different things when it comes to mourning and grief. For many people who have just numbed or avoided themselves and their pains and their struggles and are people who then do so by being busy, it slowed us down and isolated us. We actually have to deal with ourselves finally, once and for all. And I know, and I'm in this camp too, of struggling with mental health because of some of the stuff going on. But the reality is, and I'm not going to generalize it or oversimplify it, but I believe that some, some of the depression that people are saying that they're sensing because of COVID is possibly because they're finally working through the grief process and getting to the depression step. Now, that's not true for all of it. I don't want to oversimplify it, but I believe that that is some of it as we finally have to face some things that before we were too busy to face. But in other ways, COVID has made things difficult to mourn and grieve. I had an aunt who passed away at the beginning of COVID. I've told some of you about it. We have yet to have a memorial service for her. It, it doesn't feel real. We have yet to mourn as a family about her loss. Some of the other reasons of why we avoid our personal emotions might come around our religious beliefs of how we view or have been trained to view our emotions within our faith. Some of it might be personal trauma. And some of it, like I said, we've been unable, whether it's we haven't been raised, we haven't given ourselves permission, or others haven't given us permission to actually walk through grief processes properly. Now, when we look at others, what are some ways that we avoid others? Emotions. Well, 
We villainize them. We dehumanize them, like I said. We, our, our image is fogged of actually looking to see the image of God in them. We argue to be right instead of dialoguing for human connection. Then we shame somebody maybe for the emotions they feel. Even to an extreme point of that, we do what's called gaslighting where we make somebody feel crazy for the emotions that they feel. And then there's pragmatism or the idea of, well, the ends justify the means. So uh, we're okay sometimes treating somebody horribly if the result is a specific result. You know what I love about Pastor David Martinez here? I've known him since 2014, and we've been through different seasons together. We worked for another church together once upon a time. And what I love about him is he's always one of the ones who says, hey guys, even in stressful seasons, hey guys, how we treat each other matters. It doesn't matter at the end of the day if we do not love each other well. And kind of the last big brainstorm question, what causes us to not connect with people's emotions? Well, I put up here at the top because this is a part of my story, trauma. Personal trauma. I remember I, I was really wrestling in a season with like loving well. I was really struggling with relationships. And in my denomination, I have a mentor who's called a bishop. And my bishop told me this. He said, you know what? You can't force yourself to love others well. He said, you will not love others well until you understand the love that God has for you and you learn to love yourself. Another cause of us not connecting with people's emotions is contempt. Contempt is where you don't see somebody as an image bearer of God. You dehumanize them. And oftentimes what it is, is it's when somebody sticks in the anger step for too long, the angerness, uh, anger becomes bitterness and then bitterness becomes contempt. Sometimes what we believe to be right is more important than the other person. And lastly, I was thinking about this as something really, really big that we've addressed both here on the platform and pulpit and through guided prayers in multiple ways, but it's fear. Fear causes us to turn in on ourselves or our tribe out of the desire or the the. the I guess you could say false need to survive. So there's control there. Fear brings control. I want to bring you back into the text here in John 11, where we actually see a fearful response. And here we're going to start in verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is a man performing signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. 
See, they miss out on Jesus here and the story of what he's done by connecting with people and loving people and experiencing and connecting to their emotions and him experiencing emotions and then the miracle of resurrection. They miss out on this because they are fearful and they're scared of the government taking away their freedom to practice their religion. Fear is powerful. But there is good news. Here's the good news. There is no fear in love. Scripture says in 1 John 4 that perfect love casts out fear. I think part of the issue of our society, based on what I talked about at the beginning, and many Christians have fallen into this, is that we've divorced love from truth. Therefore, our truth becomes based in fear, and then it is not love. Therefore, it is not really fully God's truth. According to 1 Corinthians 13, if we divorce love from truth, we are just a clanging, loud symbol that nobody wants to pay attention to. And many of us, because of our interactions with one another, that is all we are. You can't have God's truth without love. Jesus is truth. He is logic. He is, as John says, the logos, where logic comes from, in human form. And he is defined as love because God is love. So how do we now move forward? How do we begin now to connecting with our emotions and other people's emotions and maybe experience some healing and some shift in directions and some change of our affections. I'll say this, we can't do it on our own. I say that a lot. We cannot will ourselves to do it, but I'm gonna give three ways in which we can move forward for ourselves and one way in which we can move forward for the sake of others. The first one out of the first three for ourselves is surrender and to surrender to Christ. Mark 1, 14 and 15 says, this is the good news that Jesus preached. Repent or allow your affections to change by surrendering is what that means. Repent for the kingdom of God. The Lord is here for the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe the good news. You see, when we surrender to Christ, what 1 John 4, perfect love, cast out fear is saying is that Jesus is the perfect love. So if we're gonna love as well as we can, we need to have an experience and a surrender to the perfect love who is Jesus the Christ. The second one is learn. So surrender, but the second one is learn. Learn then the ways of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the patterns of Jesus. And then third, put into practice the ways and the patterns of Jesus. We're not going to do it perfectly ever, but what it's going to do is it's going to form us. This is part of our discipleship, and this might mean that you go into some contemplative spiritual practices, like when Jesus would go up and spend whole mornings with God before he would do anything else. Maybe this means that you practice by looking for someone to bless and care for. These first three things, surrender, learn, and practice, you really can't do by yourself. You could really only do in the context of doing it with 
one another. So you will probably need to seek help outside of yourself. And this can happen in a few ways. Maybe you need to go to therapy to deal with some trauma and pain. Maybe that's a part of what needs to be done so that there's healing in your soul. Maybe you need to seek after a mentor or a group that can help you grow and learn and practice the patterns and the ways of Jesus. So we looked at the first three to focus on what we ourselves can do for our own self and healing moving forward. And the last one is for others. And we say this all the time here, but I want us to understand, and that's the acronym BLESS. When we see somebody or consider somebody or a situation or an area that God has placed us in and people to bless, we begin with prayer, the B stands for. We listen, what the L stands for. We eat with them or in this season, if you don't want to eat, we encourage them. Then we serve them and then we share our story and God's story. Here's what I want us to see, that the L, listen, you see, if, if we are practicing blessed, if we are attempting to live out this acronym, seeing this within the pattern of Jesus and discipleship, notice that with our interactions with people, that there's a slightly higher priority at first on listening than sharing. Listen to stories and pain and emotions like Jesus dwell among People seek after people that you maybe perceive as the other or maybe people that you fear that are different than you or maybe you just have never interacted with before because of maybe fear, but realize that they are your brother and sister or if not that, that realize that they are your neighbor and love them as your Self. Allow their stories and emotions and pain to move you. Allow their story to become your story. Allow their pain to become your pain. Allow their problem to become your problem and be moved by their emotions. So much so that you are moved to an emotional state that leads you into action and self-sacrificial love. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you love us so much that in a self-sacrificial way that you came down, you dwelt among us. You didn't just give us an example, but God, you are the resurrection life that now through your loving kindness, our affections can change. And so God, I pray that we're not just seeking to be reconciled to you, but as Ephesians 2 says, there's no circumcised or uncircumcised for we are all one under Christ. May we look to be reconciled with one another as our affections change, as we connect with one another because of who you are. And we pray this in your name, amen.